This is Marcy Trent Long. Welcome to Sustainable Asia. Three Billion is a four-part podcast series about the seafood trade in Hong Kong, China, and Asia. It's made in collaboration with China Dialogue and sponsored by Swire Group Charitable Trust. Welcome back to Three Billion, a podcast series on illegal trade in marine species. So common in Hong Kong, the city where I live, where the annual seafood trade is worth a whopping three billion U.S. dollars. So far in this series, we've learned about the importance of marine species to Asian cuisine and traditional medicine, and how species like reef fish and sharks are poached off the coast of developing nations. Brought to Hong Kong's free port to launder and process before they're trafficked onto nearby markets. It's clear that while consumer demand drives this trade, changing consumer behavior is a slow process and won't be enough to save the many species that are already on the brink. In this episode, I want to find out what regulations are already in place. And why these haven't succeeded in putting a stop to this illegal marine trade? It turns out, even though Hong Kong is one of the global hubs of seafood smuggling, there is really only one tool that local law enforcement have to prosecute seafood smugglers. This is CITES, the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species, a convention of which 183 countries are party. Making it one of the largest conservation agreements. Sophie Leclue, director of environment at ADM Capital Foundation here in Hong Kong, explained how the convention works. It was brought into being in the 70s to regulate trade where the trade was detrimental to the survival of the species. So when a certain species is believed to be under threat because of trade, then there will be some measures being put into place. And those measures are listing on an appendix. And the more threatened the species is by the trade, the higher the appendix listing, and the more protection it gets. There are three lists or appendices covered by the CITES Convention. So CITES one is where the、um, threat to the species is highest from trade.、Um, CITES two has got a lower threat, but still under threat of extinction, effectively. So, when a species is listed on CITES one, it means that there should be no international trade in that species. If it's listed on CITES two, there is trade allowed, but it has to come along with a bit of regulation. So, effectively, the exporting country should assess that the trade, the amount that they're trading, is not detrimental to the survival of the species. So, the appendix two species can be traded. The appendix three species are listed by the country itself. Um, and it's up to the、um, importing countries whether, whether, how they then regulate that. But it's not an international listing. There are only a few marine species listed on CITES Appendix One. We'll get back to that later. But it's mainly large mammals like whales, dolphins, walruses, seals, and only a handful of fish, such as two species of sturgeon and a single type of carp that's considered a delicacy in Southeast Asia. That's it for Appendix One: the species that can't be traded at all. Appendix Two also has a few marine species. 
Here you'll find the seahorses that Zhang Yanbo is trying to synthesize out of Chinese medicine. Also on this list is Yvonne Sadovi's beloved Napoleon fish, also known as the humphead wrasse, the large reef fish with a bumpy forehead and distinctive eye markings. When Napoleon fish was listed on CITES II, Yvonne advised the government of Indonesia, the only country that's allowed to trade in Napoleon fish, how to keep that trade sustainable. When you are a country that wants to export an Appendix II species, you have to develop a management plan that says X amount is sustainable to export. I worked quite a bit with the Indonesian government, the scientific body, LIPI, L-I-P-I, and we worked over several years to help the government to develop a sustainable export quota, which essentially meant that we had to assess the populations in Indonesia, do fishery modeling, which I did not do. I'm not a modeler by any means. I go out and count the fish. <laughs> I do the easy bit, the fun bit. Uh, we get the modeler to come along and sort of model all the data, the parameters we put into the model, basically. And they come up with Chiching a number, which is a safe, let's say, number to export. So based on things like growth rates, mortality rates, the biology of the species, approximately 2,000 was judged to be sustainable every year to export. But the idea is if you go well beyond that quota, the populations will continue to go down. Species like the Napoleon fish have found champions like Yvonne, who can bring enough attention to their dwindling numbers and who can urge fishery officials and scientists who come together every three years at CITES meetings to consider an appendix listing. Other species are not so lucky, and as always, it's usually the animals that are not so cute who fall victim to a complete lack of empathy. But like Gary Stokes of Oceans Asia said in episode one, he wants to... Bring the attention to these species that are not getting the attention they deserve. They are getting strip mined out of the ocean. You know, the delicate ecosystem that we live in, you know, every single species has a role to play, and yet we're focusing on one or two key species, and meanwhile the rest are being completely decimated. One marine animal that is unfortunately far from cute and fuzzy is the sea cucumber. It's hard to build a successful social media campaign around this leathery, slimy blob that wriggles on the seabed like an obese worm. Even Western seafood retailers have found a nifty solution for this tough sell, advertising sea cucumbers on their menus as beche de mer. Not many people like them. They like to some people, they even agree and they don't move. Luckily, Stan Shea of Bloom Association wants to be their champion. And just in time, because raising awareness on the consequences of a thriving sea cucumber trade is getting more and more urgent. Until 1996, there were less than 50 countries sending sea cucumber to Hong Kong. But if these days you look at the trade data, we already reached more than 80 countries sending sea cucumber to Hong Kong for um, our consumption or our demand. I remember I was talking to a dry seafood trader in the Pacific, in Tonga, and then I was actually in the factory. I was talking to him why you're only dealing sea cucumber. He actually explained to me his father used to ship only shark fins. And now it's more difficult to catch sharks compared to before. So they moved to other products. 
With shark fin consumer campaigns hitting the prosperous shark trade hard, Stan fears more and more fishermen will turn to the sea cucumber and deplete large populations of this strange creature without mainstream conservationists even paying attention. So I remember in cases like in the Pacific, so they have been exporting sea cucumber. Sea cucumber for them is uh, actually you go to a shallow area, you walk around, you can pick them up. But now they told us they have to employ diver to go deeper and deeper to get sea cucumber because the shallow area has been cleaned. Meanwhile, as local fishermen notice that the sea cucumber is becoming harder to find, National fishery managers are completely unaware that the sea cucumber trade is happening right under their noses. We talk to some of the exporting country or places, they don't even know they're exporting sea cucumber because to them it's never a thing. So we have to explain that by using the trade data to show that you're actually part of the trade. Otherwise, they don't know. And with fishery managers unaware that sea cucumbers are well on their way to extinction, who can expect them to vote this species into any CITES appendix? This is where Stan and fellow conservationists come in and play perhaps their most important role towards species preservation. In the run-up to a CITES Conference of Parties, or COP, they target a specific region and organize a day-long workshop. So we will have different people from the fishery manager and then to sitting in the same room to talk about the species on the marine side. In my cases, it would be sea cucumber or of all the sharks that relevant to them because they were the exporting country. Because Hong Kong is one of the leading importers, legally and illegally, of marine species, local Hong Kong NGOs have a clear idea of which species are being traded, often more so than the exporting countries who may have inadequate data monitoring or customs records available to them. So we managed to show them through our system what's been reported export from your places. And sometimes they do have the data. We help them to match. But like normally, we have the Hong Kong import data is always higher than the export data. By comparing figures on import and export data, Stan and his colleagues can convince the fishery managers of exporting countries that certain species are being overfished in their waters and deserve their attention for the upcoming CITES meeting. Because think about international trade treaty, every like three years happening. And like this year, more than 60 something proposal are talking. Some are terrestrial, some are marine, some, and then not everybody has the knowledge of everything. So we just have a workshop to make sure they understand the issues. A short break to thank our sponsor, Swire Group Charitable Trust, creating positive change in education, marine, and the arts through supporting registered nonprofit organizations, primarily in Hong Kong and mainland China. It's really thanks to people like Stan and Yvonne that marine species are even being considered for CITES listing. CITES originally came into effect decades ago, and the focus was very much on what we would probably classically think of as the big, threatened, vulnerable land animals, elephants, um, rhinos. And it really wasn't until 2002, so a long time after it had been signed, that marine species were seriously considered in terms of conservation threat and risk, and therefore could be listed on CITES. 
If CITES was established in the 70s, as Sophie said earlier, then why did the first marine species not make a single appendix until 2002? I was at the meeting in 2002 when the first listing of marine species came in and the opposition from countries was enormous because they said, these are major fishing nations, that fisheries, you know, in a sense, fish are not wildlife. And FAO, Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, should be managing fisheries, not a conservation convention. Well, we've since learned, uh, we've since got better uh, in terms of the fact that it is now recognized that many marine species can be threatened. The, The pressures on their populations are simply too high. So that, we've got over that hurdle. And it's now widely accepted, of course, that FAO does not manage fisheries. It's only an advisory body providing guidelines and what have you. And that to manage fisheries and control trade, we need proper sticks, conventions, measures, internationally accepted agreements to be able to do that. On the one hand, it's staggering how hard it is to recognize wild fish as wildlife. On the other hand, it really makes sense. When I say fish, how many of us think of the animal and not the food? There's still a lot of pushback from countries on marine species. They sort of don't take marine species conservation as seriously as terrestrial species. Terrestrial species might be managed by the Ministry of Forestry, for example, Um, And that's quite common across the region. And fisheries or fish species, marine species, are managed by the Ministry of Fisheries. And these ministries don't talk to each other. And they're very territorial. And fisheries are for production and food and for increasing. And so the whole sort of mentality around these different resources, we'll call them natural resources, has been very different. They're coming together. But it's a struggle to get fishery species on CITES taken seriously. And I think many of the problems we're seeing now is a kind of a legacy of that. And sometimes the process of listing marine species on CITES is outright obstructed or undermined by representatives with strong ties to their domestic fishing industries. Gary Stokes of Oceans Asia has personal experience with these bad apples. One of the things that I was involved with was exposing a Singaporean uh, guy who was actually the representative of Singapore to CITES. He was on the Animals Committee. His name's Dr. Guillaume Chuhu. And um, he'd been basically blocking all shark proposals for 17 years from the inside. So the way it happens with CITES is a scientist presents something and says... We believe this species, you know, is uh, is threatened. They present it to the animals committee. They go through everything, and then they put a list of all the ones that need to be discussed at the next COP. And that's when people come in, the delegates come in, they vote on it. So he was blocking it for seventeen years. So we ousted him, exposed him, put it all out there because we did notice that John Scanlon, the secretary general at the time who was new, fresh blood. You know, you could see his frustration. He's trying to, you know, trying to bring CITES back on track. And yet you've got these old dinosaurs in the closet there that just had their own agendas. So they didn't have a conflict of interest clause. And that's how Dr. Guillaume got away with it. There was no conflict of interest within CITES. He's still within CITES because the only people that can take him out is the Singapore government. 
They don't want to because that would be acknowledging that he was corrupt. So he's still there, but he was impotent. And the best thing was we had a clear case of conflict of interest. John Scanlon managed to then push that through and CITES now has conflict of interest. But while conflict of interest clauses can be a tool to take on delegates who have no real interest in saving endangered species, there's very little anyone can do about another flaw in the whole CITES process, the ability to opt out. The the most ridiculous part of CITES is after all that work, you know, all the scientists putting in all the data to recommend which sharks should be listed, and then all that meeting, everybody flying in from all around the world, all these delegates flying in, and you have the vote, and then you win, and you get the, you know, you get this listed, then you can put in a reservation. So a country can just say, actually, we'll just, we want to put a reservation in. We don't want to listen to this one. So you don't actually have to follow any of the rules for that species. So like Japan put in reservations for every single one of the shark species. They did it for the whales. They've done it for you know most of the marine species. And as soon as you put it in reservation, it's basically saying, yeah, well, we don't, we're not actually going to acknowledge that ruling. Now, China, it was really interesting because China pressed the buzzer. They wanted to speak as well. And they said, we're not going to enter a reservation. However, we do want it noted that we think it will be very, very hard for us to police, but we will do our best. And I thought, you know, that's, that's something. I mean, they, they acknowledge and I acknowledge how hard it is, you know, to actually police and enforce. It, that's, the, that's the big key here, how to enforce it. After all the trouble conservationists go through to get a marine animal listed on CITES, it then turns out that these appendices hardly come into play during the loading and offloading of marine species in an important trading hub like Hong Kong. Yvonne Sadovi and Sophie Leclue explain. So the live seafood into Hong Kong, we're having coming in by boat every day. I mean, tons and tons of fish coming in every day by boat and also by plane. And I think the imports by plane, there are some, some quite good regimes for checking and, and cross-checking, what have you. So one of the big concerns are the boats because they are pretty much free to do what they want, to come and go as, as they please. Well, it's a free port and also it's um, it's made to be easy to get things through. I mean, it's a it's a hub and it, that's the whole point of it. You know, it's supposed to be a fast, easy, sophisticated port. I guess com- what comes with that is huge volumes and what comes with that is people taking advantage of the, the system. When boats come into Hong Kong, most cargo vessels that come into Hong Kong have to report their entry and exit times to the Marine Department. And they are required to uh, report a manifest and a declaration. So a lot of them are not doing this, but they are very difficult to catch because there are exemptions to their reporting their movements to the Marine Department. Now, that sounds all very complicated, I'm afraid, but the reality is that the fishing boats are sort of just left to do what they want. There's very little oversight. They're very difficult to follow up to see if they are reporting because there are exemptions for reporting live fish, there are exemptions from reporting vessel movements, etc. Meanwhile, because of the value of some of these marine species, marine smuggling has advanced to levels impossible to predict when CITES was originally agreed upon. 
But this was back in the 1970s when it came in. And, and you know, the world was in a better state, wasn't it? There was less focus on conservation, less less concern about it. And it was a trade convention. But now we're in a much different different situation. Pressure on wildlife is much bigger. Um, and CITES isn't, isn't enough to protect the world's wildlife. In a city where so much money can be made peddling seafood, it's not surprising to find that a system like CITES, easily circumvented by people with bad intentions, is of very limited use in the fight against marine smuggling. In the next episode of 3 Billion, we'll learn how we can go beyond CITES and put an end to seafood smuggling and finally treat the industrial emptying of our oceans as a serious crime. Three Billion is produced by me, Marcy Trent Long, in collaboration with China Dialogue. The series is written and edited by Sam Columby and mixed by Chris Wood. Thanks to our sponsor, Swire Group Charitable Trust. Additional thanks to Zhang Chun and Ma Tianjie at China Dialogue Beijing, Josie Chan for translation, and our voiceover, Crystal Wu. Interviews were recorded at the Journalism and Media School of the University of Hong Kong. The intro and outro music is made from repurposed and recovered waste items by Alexander Mobison. Learn more about his music at kalelover.net.